Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Seventeen juillet, seventeen ninety-six. I write to you, my beloved. Very often, and you write very little. You are wicked. You are naughty, or oh, so naughty, as much as you are fickle. It is unfaithful, so to deceive a poor husband, a tender lover, ought he to lose all his enjoyments because he is so far away, borne down with toil, fatigue and hardship, without his Josephine, without the assurance of her love, what is left him upon earth, what can he do? Adieu, adorable Josephine, one of these nights your door will open with a great noise as a jealous person, and you will find me in your arms, a thousand loving kisses, mwah, 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 mwah. Oh, Bonaparte. Oh, God almighty. <laughs> so, Dominic. <laughs> I had to watch that. that they was... just have to listen to it. I had to watch that. <laughs> that was Napoleon Bonaparte writing to Josephine. Famous, of course, as his wife, Not Tonight Josephine, all that kind of thing, which we will be coming to at the end of this episode. And alert listeners may recall that in the previous episode, I began with a very Ligurian accent. You did. And now I have given Napoleon a French accent, even though actually he never had a French accent. He always kept his course. But you've uncovered a symbolic truth there, Tom, haven't you? It's all about the symbolic truth. It's all about the symbolic truth. Um, Because this episode really is about the process by which Napoleon jettisons his Corsican identity and commits wholeheartedly to La France. Yeah. Is it Nepal? Yeah, absolutely right. I'm still slightly in shock after that. I mean, it was very Inspector Clouseau, but the stuff with the kisses... (laughs) Was quite was quite punchy. I didn't see that coming. Yes. So um, Napoleon's relationship with Josephine is is an intriguing story. Yeah, it's a crazy story, isn't it? Actually. So we'll something to look forward to at the end of this episode. But to begin with, Dominic, the revolution is kind of hurtling towards the terror, and meanwhile, Napoleon, having watched the massacres in the Tuileries and all kinds of horrible things, has gone back to Corsica, hasn't he? He has. So people who listen to episode one will recall that uh, Napoleon, who is of course extremely Corsican, speaks with the Corsican accent, uh, has believed himself for a long time to be a kind of son of liberty of Corsica, fighting for an independent Corsica or a sort of, you know, it's hard to see what he's fighting for because it's all very confused. He has been going back and forth. And in the autumn of 1792, he has returned to Corsica. France is descending into greater and greater chaos. It is at war with its neighbors. Um, who are supporting the king. France is obviously moving towards a republic. It is moving, as you said, towards the terror, the faction fighting in Paris, the Jacobin emerging as the sort of um, the strongest party, the, the, the extreme party. And he's back in Corsica, which he discovers in greater chaos than ever. 
So open faction fighting in the streets. Uh, the French have decided uh, to try and invade Sardinia, which belongs to their kingdom, the neighboring kind of kingdom of um, Savoy, isn't it? Yeah. But the French troops in the harbor, when they are allowed off their ships, they kind of roam around causing trouble, fighting. There are lynchings in the streets. Um, at one point, there's an attack by the French on Corsicans. They mutilate their bodies and they parade them around the town. At another point, Napoleon himself is captured by some volunteers and some of his men have to kind of rescue him. So it's an incredibly dangerous and kind of anarchic situation. And Dominic, the, actually, the invasion of Sardinia that you, you mentioned, I mean, this piles disaster on disaster, doesn't it? Because it all goes horribly wrong. And this is Napoleon's first experience of armed combat. Yeah, and it's an utter humiliation, and he ends up having to spike his own guns and uh, retreat with his tail between his legs. So, not a good start. Ten days they lasted. Ten days, yeah, and they're beaten off in a very shambolic sort of circumstances. They get back to Corsica, and everybody says it's everybody else's fault. People blame him. The big cheese in Corsica, Pasquale Paoli, who Napoleon had once seen as a kind of father figure, has completely turned against the. Uh, the Bonapartes, Napoleon's brother Lucien writes a, a speech denouncing Pauli and sends it to the National Convention in, in Paris. Lucien is very Jacobin, isn't he? Yeah. He actually changes his name to Brutus, the assassin of Caesar. Yes, exactly. And this is read out. The Bonapartes denouncing Pauli is read out. That reaches Corsica. And basically in Corsica, it can now completely kicks off. Napoleon tries to, very weaselly fashion, Tom, actually, he, he now tries to write a speech himself defending Pauli. But basically, everybody in the Jaxio is out for his blood. There are a whole series of very confused shenanigans, which even his biographers say. Throw their hands up in despair. Yeah. <laughs> it's impossible to work out what's going on. Well, because this is the Corsican vibe in history. Just endless people shooting at each other for reasons that it's quite hard to get a handle on. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think basically, if they don't know themselves, it pays <laughs> yeah. to shoot your neighbor first, right? Because he might yes. shoot you for reasons you don't fully understand. And this happens to Napoleon. He's arrested. I mean, if I just read you this line, uh, the various accounts of what happened next read like an adventure story with Napoleon arrested, locked up under guard, freed at night by cunning subterfuge, pursued, caught, held with a gun to his temple in a standoff and finally spirited away while rival gangs of bandits settled scores. What is certain is that he was arrested in Bocagno, that he was freed by a cousin, briefly held again, and eventually taken to a kinsman shepherd's hut outside Ajaxio. And there's this whole series of shenanigans. Now, I think it's pretty obvious to him by this point that basically if he stays in Corsica beyond the spring, summer of 1793, he will be killed. And his family, his entire family, are in fact denounced by an assembly in a place called Corte, which is in the center of the island. They're described as zealous collaborators born in despotism and all this kind of thing. And so basically the entire family have to flee Corsica. Right. And they've been on the island for, for what, two and a half centuries, I think? Yeah. And they all decide to go and uh, they pile into a boat and set sail for France. And in the Abel Gantz's film, have you seen it? No, never seen it. Actually. I've seen clips, but never seen it. I them. saw it in the South Bank. And there's a brilliant moment at this point. So the Bonapartes are in their boat sailing from Corsica off to uh, Marseille and a Royal Navy ship appears. And on board the ship is a, a young Nelson. No, brilliant. And he asks his commanding officer permission to blow up the ship, sir. 
And the commanding officer says, no, it will make no difference. Let them go. Oh, no. And Nelson gazes wistfully as Napoleon's oh, ship flashes. Yeah, it's a great moment. How many lives would have been spared <laughs> if only Nelson had followed his instincts? Yeah. So the interesting thing about this is that Napoleon only visited Corsica once more in the rest of his life when he was coming back from Egypt in 1799. And he's done with it. He's finished. And actually, after we recorded the previous episode, we were chatting with the producers, weren't we, with um, Theo and Tabby, about this phenomenon of people who are outsiders taking the reins of kind of expansionist, imperialistic nations. So obviously- So Austrians taking- Austrians in Germany. Over in Germany, for instance. Have a bad record. <laughs> yes. Georgians in the Soviet Union, yeah. for example. And there is definitely- I mean, Napoleon is the, is the great example of this, actually, because he obviously is ultimately- Corsican, not French. But there is part of him that feels French as well. And there's also part of him that's turned his back on Corsica and is embarrassed by it, don't you think? Absolutely. But I think that it becomes possible for him ideologically, because as we mentioned in the first episode, the justification for the revolution in France is very, very self-consciously universalist. Yeah. So by nailing his colours to the French mast, he is also proclaiming himself a would-be citizen of the world. And this, of course, over the long run, will provide Napoleon with tremendous justification for all kinds of conquests. Yeah. Because he say he's doing it for the good of humanity, not just for France. And I think that that must facilitate psychologically his transition from being Corsican to being French, don't you think? Oh, I think that's definitely true. The universalism, the invocation of the Romans as forebears, the appeal to a kind of Republican principles, they allow him to escape the bind, I guess, that he's in to some extent. But don't you think psychologically there's also... Because he spent so long writing his little histories of Corsica and novels about Corsicans killing loads of Frenchmen and stuff like this. There must have been a little part of him, if only subconsciously, you know, when he puts on the robes of the emperor of the French, when he has all France behind him, that gains this satisfaction. Do you not think from taming the colonial power? Of course, psychologically. He might not have admitted it to himself. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm absolutely sure. But I do also think that the opportunities that revolutionary ideology provides him for self-advancement are incredibly significant. Yeah, And I think it's really telling that, that when he gets to France from ha having escaped from Corsica, that he writes a very, very overtly Jacobin tract, doesn't he? He does. And has it kind of published very much saying, this is what I am. I am now a French Jacobin. Yeah, he does. Le soupe de Bouquet, it's called a kind of weird... A sort of polemic disguised as a conversation among people at an inn in Beaucaire, which is between Avignon and Nice. I mean, it's a pure political manifesto, really. Adam Zmoyski is very good on this in his book, talking about how this is the moment where you see in this manifesto, very much in keeping, I think, with the mood of the times, which is war-torn, you know, the revolution is clearly, you were in, we're moving into the terror. There's a kind of grim cynicism to it a sort of fear of the excesses of human nature, uh, an emphasis on strong government, on shedding blood, on all these kinds of things, which is very of the moment. We talked about his adolescent histrionics, this tone that runs throughout his writings from his teenage years. But by the time he's getting into his late 20s and the events around him and he is starting to become a player in it, a, a tone that sounds histrionic when you're a 16-year-old 
increasingly comes to match the circumstances that he finds himself in. Well, because the people who are running the revolution are now the people who are 16-year-olds at the same time as, yeah. as him, right? Yeah. The Saint-Justs, I mean, even you know the other people on the Committee of Public Safety, they're remarkably young. They're all tanked up. Remember we talked about this when we did that French Revolution podcast in the back in the midst of time. Yeah. Their wine bills are through the roof. They've been probably talking about the purifying nature of bloodshed yeah. for years anyway. And now they have a chance to put it into practice. For Napoleon, it's different because he's not in Paris. He remains an army officer. He remains an artillery commander. And with the escalation of the terror, so also um, France is becoming internationally ever more besieged. So that Royal Navy ship in the Abel Gansfield with Nelson on it is an expression of the fact that Britain and France by this point are at war. And yeah. there are Aristos, reactionary, pro-royalist uh, French forces that are now in alliance with the Royal Navy. And they are looking to seize a port on the South Coast, aren't they? Basically, when he gets back to France, France is a war zone. South of France is a war zone. Ten provinces have turned against the National Convention. There's a full-scale revolution against the revolution in the Vendée in the west of France. Counter-revolution, I believe, is the... The phrase, Dominic. Yes, thank you. I was looking for that, and um, <laughs> uh, I like revolution against the revolution. I think that's a, I think that's a more French phrase way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, maybe. la révolution contre la révolution. Tom, peut-être. If maybe. I was a polo neck wearing French professor, that's what I'd call it. That'd be the title of my book, my monograph. Um, anyway, royalists had taken too long, and they had occupied it in collaboration with the British, with a fleet under Admiral Hood. Which has sailed in, hasn't it? Yes. And seized control of the, all the naval dockyards, because we talked about this in the context of the, the episodes we did on Nelson, that navies cannot function without well-stocked dockyards. I know you love a dockyard. So by seizing Toulon, the British have effectively knocked out the French Navy. So the convention have sent an army to recapture Toulon and Bonaparte ends up being associated with this army as an artillery officer. And the guy who is in charge of the artillery is badly wounded in the early sort of engagements around Toulon and Napoleon ends up being promoted to replace him. I mean, it's a really interesting thing that's happening because you've said a couple of times about the revolution clearing the way for Napoleon. That's obviously what this does because people who are very young are being thrust into positions, as in Paris, of unexpected power and responsibility mm. because the elders have either defected to the other side or are leading the rebellion or have been executed. So Napoleon's the next guy in line. And actually, some people say, really? I mean, he's never really done anything. He's just a kid. And somebody says they've read his Jacobin pamphlet, Le Super de Beaucaire, and they say, well, he's one of us. Very kind of Thatcherite um, approach. He's on, you know, he's, he's ideologically, he's okay. Yeah, he's on side. He's on side. And actually, some people may say, who love Napoleon, because of course, there are always people who adore Napoleon, Andrew Roberts, for example. They may say, Tom and Dominic have been very sniffy about Napoleon in these podcasts. But actually, he really distinguishes himself at Toulon, doesn't he? Oh, he does tremendously well, doesn't he? And he does it in all kinds of ways. So his strategic sense, there are heights commanding the harbour. And even though the French don't have ships with which to attack the Royal Navy, Napoleon immediately recognises that if they can seize the forts that the British and the Royalists have occupied, then you know this will be tremendous because the Royal Navy will have no choice but to retreat. Yeah. Napoleon immediately recognises that. He recognises that to make this happen, he will need to source large quantities of artillery. And so he is, you know, I mean, he never rests. He gets artillery from every corner of southern France that he can, concentrating an immense 
quantity of firepower. And also he is physically very brave. I mean, he's absolutely in the, the heart of the fighting. Um, and at one point, an artilleryman is killed. There's great explosions going on. Napoleon seizes his gloves, loads the cannon, fires it himself. And uh, it's all tremendous. And the cost that Napoleon pays for doing this, Dominic, is that he gets scabies from the gloves. Oh, that's right. Yes. He gets scabies. I mean, he gets it for about the next 10 years. He does. And so this is an important part of his courtship of Josephine, which we'll come to later. Would you like to come up and upstairs and look at my scabies? <laughs> he's not only kind of scrawny and unsophisticated, but he's got scabies. So, <laughs> yes. you know, but we all have to make sacrifices for la patrie. We do, right. Exactly. So that's Napoleon's sacrifice. So he really impresses his superior officers. The army attacking Toulon goes through a succession of different generals, many of whom are utterly useless. They're kind of doctors, people who write poems, yeah. this kind of thing. But they, almost without exception, recognize in Napoleon that he's a very charismatic leader, that his attention to detail, his work ethic, his seriousness really impresses his men. He's getting fans, not just senior people, but also there's a guy called Juno, yeah. who will end up becoming one of his great generals, a guy called Marmont, another one of his great kind of collaborators. And also there's a man called Augustin Robespierre, who is the brother of the big cheese in Paris. And obviously an alliance with a Robespierre. Very good, isn't it? Yeah, it's... Well, as long as the Robespierre can stay in power and not shoot their jaws off and end up on the guillotine. Of course. But, I mean, the thing is that taking the war to the British is obviously a way to win the hearts of pretty much everyone in France. Yeah. To a degree, even royalists in their hearts are going to be conflicted. <laughs> At French victory over, over over British arms, and so Napoleon does very well on this score. And he he even um, he captures a British commander of one of the forts above Toulon, a guy called Charles O'Hara. He'd been launching a, a counterattacking sally against the besieging French. Gets captured, and this was the same guy Dominic who had surrendered on behalf of General Cornwallis at Yorktown to George Washington. Yeah, And now he surrenders to Napoleon. So he's the only person ever personally to have surrendered to both Washington and Napoleon. And he gets sent off to uh, Paris, where he ends up in prison with Thomas Paine. You know, the rights of man by this point has been imprisoned yeah. and uh, apparently gets on tremendously well with him. Oh, I think, I think worse and worse of him, Tom. Golly, what a record. Yeah, what a record. Odd that we don't make more of uh, General O'Hara in, in Britain. <laughs> Yes. Um, so um, the defeat of, of General O'Hara, I mean, that's very helpful. And by December 1793, essentially Napoleon's strategy has worked. Yes. The commanding heights have been seized and Admiral Hood has no choice but to beat retreat. And there are a lot of explosions going on, aren't there? Huge, huge excitement. And Napoleon will always remember with a kind of, you know, the, the thrill of watching magazines and ships exploding. So later in life, he, he remembered the whirlwind of flames and smoke from the arsenal resembled the eruption of a volcano. And the 13 vessels blazing in the roads were like so many displays of fireworks. The masts and forms of the vessels were distinctly traced out by the flames, which lasted many hours and formed an unparalleled spectacle. So the thrill of violence, war and victory, Yeah, I guess, very suitable background for the spectacular achievements of this upstart young officer. He did very well at Toulon. Everybody recognises that he's the architect of victory. It's not just that he planned the strategy to seize the forts rather than the city. In other words, to, to remove the British Navy as a factor, which basically means the city has no choice but to fall. But also, he led them in. 
I mean, he led his men, you know, saber drawn kind of thing. He received a big a wound, didn't he, to the leg? Yes, from a British officer, from a bayonet. It's a perfect wound because it's not you're not going to die, but, but you get a scar. But you get a scar, and everybody will say he led his troops single. You know, he led them in sword in hand. He was wounded. What a hero! Actually, the siege of Toulon. What something that doesn't often get brought out. I don't know whether Ridley Scott's film will bring it out. Is what happened next to Toulon. So the people of Toulon were desperate to get away. They were throwing themselves. It's very kind of Smyrna, 1920s. Mm. They're throwing themselves into the into the sea, desperate to reach the British ships. Probably thousands of people were raped and killed and mutilated in various ways. Yeah, because I think the population was something like 25,000. And by the end of it, it's about 7,000. I mean, that's a, a lot of people killed. Because the revolutionary armies, once they got into Toulon, you know, the commanders just said, right, go for it. You've got three days. Do what you like. I mean, this is at the same time as that campaign in the Vendée, yeah. which some historians have characterized as near genocidal, just wiping people out. People being put in cages and chucked in the Loire and all kinds of things. Exactly. And Napoleon said later that he was revolted by it, that he was shocked at the atrocities. I think whether it's the violence that shocks him or whether it's the spectacle of disorder that shocks him, it's hard to say. Probably the latter, I would suggest. Because he's, as we said, talked last time, he hates the idea of any form of anarchy, of any confusion or chaos. I suppose partly because of what he's seen on Corsica. But he comes out of Toulon. Everything's looking great. He is promoted to Brigadier General, a general at 24. Yeah. Extraordinary. There's talk of him joining the Army of Italy that will push into Piedmont. Uh, he's drawing out plans for that. He has a great scheme that he will go through Italy and get to um, Vienna and knock Austria out of the war. And his great pal that he has made at the Siege of Toulon, Augustin Robespierre, you know, obviously a coming man, the brother of Maximilian. And Robespierre says to him, why don't I take you with me to Paris? <laughs> <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? And <laughs> going to Paris and... 1794. Oh, this is the thing. With a Robespierre. So this is a really interesting road not taken because some people have said maybe he would have ended up commanding the National Guard in Paris in mid-1794. And had he done that, had he gone with Augustin to Paris, I guess he might have been executed at Termidor in the turn against the Jacobins. I had to thought it very, very likely. He'd be a threat, wouldn't he? He would. A successful military man who had pinned his colours so firmly to the Robespierre mast. So he doesn't go. He's still in the south of France at Nice at the beginning of August uh, 1794 when he gets news that his great pal has been guillotined. <laughs> There's been a turn against the extremists on the Committee of Public Safety. There's been a coup in Paris, the Termidor coup. And he's actually briefly arrested. I don't think there's ever a serious threat to him, but he's briefly detained. Because isn't it Junot proposes trying to break him out? He does, And exactly. Napoleon says, no, don't do that. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Yeah, and it is fine. But obviously what he needs now is a new focus and um, he needs a kind of new patron, I suppose. And in the second half, we'll see how he finds this new patron, a man called Paul Barras, who, as luck would have it, is going to become the single most influential figure in the new regime, the directory, he will be requiring from Napoleon a whiff of grape shot. And crucially, Tom, which will give you a chance to uh, delve back into that lovely impression, Barras has a girlfriend called Josephine. So we'll be meeting her after the break. The whiff of grape shot might be the only whiff, but oh. more on that later. <laughs> 
This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have terrible consequences. For instance, look at all the conflicts throughout history. I wonder how many of them could have been solved if they just talked things out. And Tom, I have a confession for our listeners. As you know, I've been really struggling with anxiety about the massive series that we've got coming on The Rest is History, all the prep we have to do for that series on the French Revolution, the First World War. I mean, it's all mounting up, isn't it? And when we talked it out, I felt so much better now that I've got all those crippling anxieties and insecurities off my chest. If you want to talk, you can always talk to me. But if not, then I highly recommend therapy. It can help you learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It empowers you, Dominic, to be the best version of yourself. If you want to give therapy a try, why not check out BetterHelp? It's entirely online, it's convenient and flexible, and it's really easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash rest is history today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash rest is history. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are still dealing with the young Napoleon. So Napoleon has lost a potential patron in his friend Augustin Robespierre. The Thermidorian reaction in Paris is underway. So that's a turn against the kind of what are perceived as being the kind of militant excesses of the terror. He doesn't initially go to Paris, does he, Tom? He spends a lot of time lurking around the south of France, where he actually ends up getting engaged, Napoleon. He does, yes, to um, Eugène Désiré. Clary, who is very sweet. Napoleon, <laughs> I mean, he's not the greatest romantic figure, is he? Basically, he just kind of mansplains to her what she should be reading and bullies her because she doesn't play the piano well enough and all kinds of things. <laughs> kind of nightmare boyfriend. He's about 10 years older than her, isn't he? Well, just under 10 years because she's about 16 and he's constantly writing her letters saying, you don't want to do it like that. Yeah. <laughs> Are you doing your music practice? Your music teacher is awful. I think you should be playing this and all this kind of thing. <laughs> That's how you do it. I'll show you. Yeah, amazingly, she she tolerates all this. It seems to be a great romance, doesn't it? She actually, you see, she ends up as the Queen of Sweden. Yeah. She marries uh, Bernadotte, doesn't she? She does. Yeah. Uh, who becomes... She has a very impressive life. Yeah. So her descendant is, I mean, still on the Swedish throne to this day, I think. Exactly. She's the winner of all this. She's the real star <laughs> of, this, of this series. Anyway, he's he's kind of carrying on with her bossing around and stuff. He goes off to Paris with Junot and Marmont, who are kind of hero-worshipping him by this point. First of all, when he gets to Paris, it's a very strange atmosphere in Paris, isn't it? Because they're still at war, but there's been a sort of backlash against the whole terror thing. So now there's this sort of Weimar Republic. Yeah, so everyone is partying, celebrations, yeah, orgies. Sort of sex and money everywhere. Yeah. But people are kind of doing things like, I've seen, I was astounded by this. The weird ball for people whose relatives have been guillotined. Did you see that? Balls for people whose relatives have been guillotined. And you wear a thin red stripe around your neck. They have parties in the prisons where the September massacres had happened, where you wear, yeah, where you wear a red ribbon around your neck. Yeah. Like you've been executed, you've been guillotined. I mean, that is bonkers. 
But he, when he goes to these parties, he's very shifty, awkward. It's not his scene, is it? No. You can take the boy out of Corsica, but... You can't take... Are all Corsicans shifty and shifty and awkward at parties? No, but they're not having kind of decadent type parties with... No, they're not. You know, relatives of guillotine duchesses in a Jaxio, are they? I mean, that's the whole point of it. They're wearing wide trousers and shooting pistols at each other. White trousers and eating goat's cheese. <laughs> yeah. Growing big moustaches. It's a very different party vibe, Dominic. I'm not saying which one is better. No. I'm not, no, I'm not, no, I'm not no, being not. judgmental. I'm just saying you can understand it must be awkward for a young lad from Ajaxio. It's the difference between South London and Chipping Norton, Tom. That's pretty much what it is. I thought you were going to say the difference between South London and Mayfair. No, I wasn't. Oh, so you're casting the South Londoners as the Corsicans. Yes. Okay. <laughs> While he's hanging around in Paris, he becomes friendly with this guy who's an extraordinary character called Paul Barras. And Barras had been at Toulon as a kind of political bigwig attached to the army. Barras had an extraordinary history. He had fought the British in India. He'd then become um, a sort of delegate at the convention. He'd played a small kind of supporting part in the downfall of Robespierre. And he had worked his way up to become the chief figure in this new regime, which is known as the Directory. And Barras is incredibly corrupt, conniving, kind of cynical, doesn't trust anybody, nobody trusts him, but he is incredibly rich. He's basically siphoning a lot of the money that goes to the army for himself, and he knows everybody. Paris is full of his ex-lovers and his friends and all of this sort of thing, and he is a very useful person for Napoleon to know. But at first, it's not clear what's going to happen to Napoleon. Technically, he's been posted to the Vendée, to this incredibly brutal campaign. But he doesn't want to go, does he? He doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to go and fight fellow Frenchmen which is interesting. He spends a lot of time in very Napoleon style uh, writing a novel. So he writes a sort of romantic novel, doesn't he? Called Clisson et Eugenie. It's about a young lad, very brave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, very, I mean, uh, who it could be modelled on, God only knows. Yeah. But isn't he also, at the same time as he's writing his novel, contemplating perhaps going to Constantinople, perhaps even going to India and, yeah. and joining the East India Company? I mean, kind of history would have been very different then, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. So he's... Bit mopey because I'd always had the vague sense that you know he becomes the great star after Toulon, but actually he's kind of s slightly stuck, isn't he? He's treading water. Yeah, he is exactly. I thought the same. I thought he would have been taken up as the great hero, but not really. He's just sort of drifting. And then fate really plays into his hands because in the summer of 1795, Paris. We're talking about France, but it's really Paris is in a very uncertain position because they, they need to adopt a new constitution. And it's not clear whether the new constitution will be more left-wing or right-wing than the Republican constitution under the Jacobin. And what is more, there has there is clearly a lot of latent royalist support. Right, so Louis XVI has been executed and his son, the poor boy, who gets put in a cage, doesn't he, pretty much? And Yeah. I, I mean, horrible. Um, and he dies which means that the enormously fat <laughs> new king is Louis XVIII, who is obviously not in France. No, he's in Italy, I think. But is siding with all the, um, well, he'll end up in Britain in due course, won't he? Yeah. But it's that kind of royalist, internationalist axis. But therefore, the realisation that there are lots of potential royalists in Paris is very unsettling for anyone concerned with the survival of the Republic. Yes, exactly. So... We're approaching the month of, well, we're in the month of Vendemiaire because they're still using the mad revolutionary, the mad revolutionary calendar. Yeah. But on what we would call the um, evening of the 3rd of October, 
1795. Napoleon gets a message from Paul Barras. Now, Paul Barras is a member of the Committee of Public Safety. He's the kind of the, the real, I wouldn't say the guiding spirit, but he's one of the most influential people in the directory. And Barras says, come to my house at uh, Chaillot, which is to the kind of west of Paris. I need to talk to you. So the next morning, Bonaparte goes along. It's the morning of the 4th. And Barras says to him, there are things that need to be done in Paris. There are royalists. There are, there's trouble coming. I need to know that I can rely on you. And Bonaparte clearly says to him, okay, fine. You can, you know, you can rely on me. He goes back to Paris. Then he goes to the theatre. People are always doing that in the French Revolution, of course. aren't they? Crucial moments. Yeah. You know, they're in the middle of like the massive coup and they say, well, hold on, there's a, I don't want to miss that. <laughs> so he goes to the, to the theatre and when he gets out, he hears that one of the sections, Le Pelletier, which is in the centre of Paris, has revolted. So the sections are the kind of local government kind of areas. This has been brewing for a long time. There's been a lot of discontent. They declare their defiance of the sort of central authority and they call on the other sections to rise up and join them. That evening, the National Assembly send a guy called General Menu to go and suppress this revolt. Menu leads his troops into the very narrow streets of Le Pelletier and he thinks, basically, we're going to get surrounded and trapped. This isn't going to work at all. And actually what he does is he, he kind of wimps out a bit because he well, he's to- massively outnumbered, isn't he? Yes. But also it's reflective of an unwillingness to confront the Paris mob. Yeah. Which in a way is the the embodiment of the revolution. Exactly. I mean, it has been since 1789. Yeah. Whereas Napoleon has no such qualms at all, yeah. which presumably is why Barras has fixed on him. I mean, it's not just his military ability, his command of artillery, but presumably there's also a kind of, he's recognised a steeliness. But, but not merely a steeliness, but an ideological attitude towards what Napoleon presumably would cast as rabbles. That, yeah, I think there's that. Do you think, Tom, that his Corsicanness might be a thing here? That he perhaps doesn't feel the yes, sentimental perhaps. attachment yeah. to the Paris mob that other sort of metropolitan Frenchmen might think? Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Yeah. And he's used to mobs on the streets of Ajaxio, isn't he? trying to lynch him. <laughs> so probably he's, he, he kind of thinks, you know, I'd love to get my own back on a mob one day. But this is also, I mean, it is also, you know, we d- described how he sees the mobs rampaging through the Tuileries. Yeah. He, yeah, he yeah. despises it. He does. He thinks it needs to be tamed. So there are two different versions of what happens next. There's Napoleon's version, which is that he goes to the convention. Everybody's in a terrible panic. They're debating different generals. Um, he hears them mention his name. He has a, a think about it and he says, I will do it as long as you give me total authority to do whatever is necessary. So a very kind of man of destiny stuff. The other version is uh, Barras's version, which I think sounds slightly more plausible, which is that Barras, who is far better known than, than Napoleon, says to his friends on the Committee of Public Safety, I have the man you need, a little Corsican officer who won't be squeamish. Now, you can see why Napoleon wouldn't want that story told, because it's very demeaning to him. It does sound slightly more plausible, doesn't it? So, the next morning, on the 5th of October, when Paris awakes, they discover that Napoleon, as always, full of energy, full of kind of that work ethic, that drive, he has already secured loads of guns, and he has positioned them around the sort of institutions of government at the Tuileries Palace, on the bridges, at the Place de la Concorde, and so on and so forth. He has mustered about 5,000 men, but they are outnumbered, I think, four to one. 
by the mob and the National Guardsmen who have joined the mob. And I guess what in Ridley Scott's film, what they'll probably do, I'm anticipating, is they'll show Napoleon firing on the mob as they advance. But that actually isn't what happens. They then stand around for about the next 12 hours, just sort of shuffling their feet and waiting and waiting. So when does the whiff of grape shot happen? It doesn't happen till the late afternoon. Mm. So it starts raining. A lot of people go home. That is always the case with kind of mobs, coups. Yeah, and, it's like the Chartists, isn't it? Yeah. As soon as it starts raining, give up. people just think, oh, sod this, I'm going home. I'm not, gonna, I'm not getting wet. It's like cricket. <laughs> yeah, it's like cricket. Mob violence and cricket are very, very similar. <laughs> yeah. And then Napoleon just says, okay, go for it. And uh, he says, let's show them that we mean business. His cannons open fire and they're using grape shot, which I'd never really understood. I'd always thought that the whiff of grape shot sounded so trivial that they shot in the air and they shot buckshot or something. But no, it's, no, it's pretty, pretty brutal, isn't it? Because what they do is they've got hundreds of musket balls. They pack them into this case, a sort of metal cylinder or something, and they shoot them out of the, the cannon. And as it comes out of the cannon... It just goes everywhere. Yeah, the case explodes. The metal balls fly. Do you see this, how quickly they go? It's kind of like shrapnel. They go about 2,000 feet per second. Ooh. That speed. You wouldn't want to be in, in the middle of that, would you? And they can go up to 600 yards. So, But you know what Napoleon said of the rabble? Dominic. He said it must be persuaded by terror. Right. He puts, you know, puts those words into action. I don't want to say he did it and he was right to do it, but he did it and it worked. I mean, it could not have worked more successfully. And effectively, this is what ends the role that the mob has been playing in the politics of France. Totally. For about 30 years, doesn't it? Yeah, totally. How many people are killed? We don't know. Hundreds. Some people might say even a thousand. But the net result of it is that the directory... The, the new regime completely wins. The mob is dispelled. The royalist uprising disappears. Barras is left in full charge of the city. He has um, Napoleon appointed as the commander of the army of the interior as his reward. So he is now the, effectively the, the military governor of Paris. And Napoleon seizes that opportunity. He closes down some of the clubs. He reforms the National Guard. He gets new positions for all of his cronies so Juno and his family Marmont well. and his family exactly yeah his family so that's again very Corsican isn't it clans clan loyalties all that kind of thing and he also no it's not just that he does all that but he also starts to now turn himself into a celebrity he is the man that won the day and he starts riding around the city with his his officers they have enormous moustaches he doesn't have an enormous moustache but they do they're wearing massive hats big boots and they're kind of a very impressive spectacle and they're making it clear. They're very young and they're in their twenties and they're making it clear to everybody in Paris. We are the new generation. We're in charge. Who are in yeah. charge now. Yeah. We're the new masters. Now, one of the other things that he does is he says he's going to confiscate all privately held arms. And he says to people, if you are found with private weapons, they will be taken away from you. And again, I mean, this is the key thing, isn't it? Over the previous years, the inability of anyone to exercise a monopoly of violence is what has made politics so chaotic and brutal. But from this point on, effectively, there is a monopoly of violence. Yeah. And people do you think they crave order by this time? Six years of chaos? I think so. I think most people do. And lots of people want a quiet life and they think, great, finally, so he's sorting it out. Now, one of the people he wants to confiscate arms from is this family where the... the a 14-year-old boy supposedly comes to his headquarters and says, can I please keep my father's sword? Because my father was oh, a general yes. and he was yeah. guillotined in the terror and I would love to keep his sword. And Bonaparte, what a soft-hearted man he is. He says, of course, 
you young whippersnapper. Of course, my boy. Ruffles his hair. And then, well, it depends which story you believe. Maybe he goes to the boy's house to pay his respects to the, to the boy's mother, to the widow himself. Maybe she comes to visit him. Or maybe Tom has already met her at loads of parties around the city <laughs> and this story is completely invented and, and not true. Because who is the woman, Dominic? She is Marie-Joseph Rose de Beauharnais, born Tasha, uh, but better known to us all as Josephine. Mm-hmm. At last. And Josephine is an extraordinary character. So her family owned a plantation in Martinique and had married her off. She spends her... her- childhood there doesn't she exactly yes and so she a taste for sugarcane which doesn't help with her her dentistry her teeth no so she's lost all her teeth hasn't she because of she's eaten far too much sugar which is never an attractive thing i think but she she's very good at disguising it isn't she um she can kind of smiles and keeps her her lips (laughs) together she does and she's had a very strange life up to this point she had been married off to this guy called Alexandre de Beauharnais, who was just a terrible person. He was unfaithful. He was abusive. He was jealous. When the revolution happened, he was put in charge of the army of the Rhine, and he was totally inept. He lost the fortress at Mans and was accused of treason and executed. And she was thrown into the same prison that he was, a prison called Les Calm. He had an affair in this prison with some other general's widow, and she had an affair with General Lazar Osh, who is the guy who is commanding the, ends up commanding the army in the Vendée. And she's having that affair in the prison. And this is quite common, isn't it? Because, totally, um, yeah. Because if you're pregnant, you can't be guillotined. Exactly. So lots of female prisoners are having sex with jailers and everybody to try and get pregnant. The descriptions by Napoleon's biographers of scenes of the prison are actually terrifying. So apparently the walls are still smeared with blood from the massacres of the in September uh, 1792, all these priests and stuff. But people are copulating in all different parts of the prison, partly because of this thing of trying to escape if you're a pregnant woman, but also this sort of last desperate act of hedonism before the blade comes down. Yeah. Andrew Roberts says he thinks she was suffering, she ended up suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, Josephine, because of her experiences in the prison. Anyway, she gets out. She carries on with General Osh still. She also becomes the mistress of Paul Barras. Now, Barras was quite ungallant about her. He said she was precociously decrepit, which is a harsh. Well, she's old, thing. isn't she? She, I mean, by the standards of of successful courtesans, <laughs> Tom, she's, 30, so she's what thirty five or she's something. She's thirty two. Thirty two. <laughs> okay. She's not that old. But considering the role that she is playing, I mean, she doesn't have any money, does she? No, she's lost all her money, so she's dependent on rich and powerful men. Yeah, a bit like Emma Hamilton. Same thing. But what Josephine? She doesn't have teeth. That's true, and. Barras says she's decrepit, and you very ungallantly say she no longer has her youth. But what she has, Tom, is what Barras himself calls the most refined, the most perfected artistry ever practiced by the courtesans of ancient Greece or Paris in the exercise of their profession. So she's a very accomplished performer. And Napoleon at this stage is not, it would be fair to say. No, Napoleon not at all. He's gauche, he's inexperienced with women, shifty, awkward. I mean, he's certainly never done something that she does that Andrew Roberts discusses, says he doesn't know what it is, which is called the zigzags. Yes. Do you know what the zigzags are, Tom? Well, I don't because nobody does. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. But it absolutely wins Napoleon's heart, doesn't it? It does. He becomes obsessed by her 
And an example of that obsession is the kind of lurid tones of the love letter that uh, I read out at the the head of the show. Yeah. And I mean, his letters to her are astonishing. I mean, very explicit. We talked about the whiff of grape shot, but he is very keen on her not washing. Yes. So that's something he, he really likes. So that's another whiff. Yeah. And he calls her private parts Baron de Kepin. Yeah. And nobody I mean, knows why. <laughs> something to do with the zigzags, is it? So zigzags, Baron de Kepin, no washing. It's all happening. But from the start, she's not keen on him. She calls him a puss in boots. She says he comes from a family of beggars. She's not that interested. Really, she would much rather have married General Osh, I think. Or Barras. Well, Barras, basically, a lot of people say he was trying to get rid of an unwanted mistress. So again, it's like Emma Hamilton, who gets dumped by uh, Hamilton's nephew on him. That's right, yeah. But also there's an element with Barras, as some biographers say, the thing with Barras is he wants to get rid of Josephine, she's just a pain and he's sick of her. He also wants to distract. He wants to both bind Napoleon to him and also kind of, Napoleon is being really difficult and annoying because he's always <laughs> like writing plans for invasions and demanding meetings and kind of you know working too much so deploy the zigzags yeah so Varys thinks deploy the zigzags get him distracted he's just being a pain and as you say he is totally and utterly smitten to be fair this is the one point in the whole series where i think he comes out quite well because I was impressed to read that he's very nice to her children. So he goes to visit their 14 and 12, Eugène and Hortense. What about the young boy who's come for the sword? Well, he's, he's Eugène. He's Eugène. Yeah. And um, Napoleon tells him ghost stories and plays with him. Yeah, that is nice. So we haven't seen that side of him. No, that is nice. Yeah. I imagine he's playing wooden soldiers though. Oh, undoubtedly. This is an attack on the English. Let's, you know. I'll be the French again, that kind of thing. But meanwhile, Dominic, while he is playing wooden soldiers with uh, Josephine's children, I mean, he is seriously looking to have a crack at the Italians, isn't he? He is. So France's great antagonist, it was not just Britain, it's also Austria. Of course, Marion Zornet was Austrian. Austria is the great power in Central Europe. And Napoleon has always thought, we can knock out Austria if we make a two-pronged attack. One army goes through Germany, and the other, led by me, will go through Italy, through the Tyrol, and up towards Vienna. The soft underbelly, I believe, is the phrase. Only a fool would describe that as a soft underbelly. Because that's the, I know, I know. the white war from World War One. But you're right. Napoleon thinks it's a soft underbelly. I'm not calling you a fool, Tom. I'm calling Napoleon a fool if he thinks that's a soft underbelly. Anyway. I'm glad that's been made clear. Yeah, I would never do that to you. Not after that reading like that to start the episode. I mean, that was genius. So the other commanders say, this is a very bad idea, don't do it. But Napoleon manages to persuade everybody that it's a great plan and that he is the man to lead it. And before leaving, he decides, first of all, he he reads everything that he can about Italy, maps, books. He shuts himself for a whole week in his office reading up on it. But also he decides to make an honest woman of Josephine. She's lovely. And she's actually very ambivalent about getting married, isn't she? She doesn't really want to do it. Yeah. But signs up to it. Yeah. And very romantically, he forgets about it, doesn't he? Well, he's distracted by his war plans. Yeah. And then he turns up two hours late, doesn't he? He does. And she is wearing a revolutionary sash. So tricolor. That's nice. Looking very gorgeous. And uh, at the wedding, they both lie about their age. (laughs) So Napoleon (laughs) says he's older. And Josephine says she's younger. Yeah. Yeah. So they they have the same age. (laughs) And also, she's been waiting for two hours. The guy who was meant to conduct the wedding ceremony 
has got sick of waiting and has gone home to bed. So they never actually get married, do they, legally? Yeah, because the guy who's who steps in is not actually legally equipped to do the marriage, so it's invalid. Napoleon gives her a wedding gift, a medallion with the words, to destiny on it. <laughs> and he is now... I mean, he is now in a position to live up to this kind of melodrama. Yes. From this point on, when Napoleon says, to destiny, it's not inherently ridiculous. No. He is becoming a man of destiny. Although what I did enjoy, Tom, which is inherently ridiculous, is his wedding night. They go back home and Napoleon tries to get into Josephine's bed and her dog (laughs) won't let him do it. Fortuné, her pet pug. Yeah, and bites him (laughs) to stop him getting into her bed. Not tonight. Which probably, yeah. Bonaparte. So, yeah. <laughs> this is the thing. There's a whole not, not tonight, Josephine. Josephine is really never that keen on him because she's always unfaithful to him, isn't she, later on? Yeah. And she's hung around with a lot more worldly and impressive, so it would seem, richer and more impressive men than Boney. Right. But we leave Napoleon on the verge of becoming a very, very impressive figure indeed. Yeah. Because the expedition to Italy is the one that David will immortalize with his great painting, yeah, showing him as a kind of Hannibal crossing, crossing the, Alps. the Alps. And this is the moment, isn't it? Just as he's about to head off to, to take up the command of um, the Italian army, that he changes the spelling of his name. It's the perfect moment to end this, Tom, actually, because so much of this week's little series has been about the tension between Corsica and France, and also the sort of ambivalence within Napoleon about who he will be, who he is and who he'll be. And the first time he ever signs his name Bonaparte rather than Buonaparte is the letter that he writes to Josephine after he's left the headquarters of the army of Italy to begin this great enterprise that he has dreamed up. Yeah. You know, he writes, every instant takes me further away from you, my adorable love. With every instant, I find less and less strength with which to bear being away from you. You are the constant object of all my thoughts. And he signs that Bonaparte. So it's as though he's finally pinned his colors to the French mast. You know, he's no longer the little guy from Corsica, but he is the war hero, the embodiment of France, who's going to carry the flag of the revolution against the um, reactionary powers. And so that, Dominic, is why, although the accent at the start of this show on one level was inaccurate, in another it speaks to a profounder truth. Yeah, beautifully judged. The truth being that Napoleon, from this point forward, is a Frenchman. He's a Frenchman. And you know what? People say he's um, too young to come on the army of Italy. And he has a wonderful line. He says, I should be old when I return. And we will come back to that, won't we? Maybe not immediately, but we will come back to Napoleon. We can't just leave him hanging there forever. Uh, but when we do, we'll have done the French Revolution. Because I think... So many interesting things to talk about with the French Revolution that we just you know, skimmed over when we did it on the rest of history. All those <laughs> 50 minutes. In, yeah, exactly. So next year, we'll do a big series on the French Revolution. All the blood and guts, all the idealism, all the aspirations and the ideas and the ideology and all the faction fighting and all that sort of stuff. And Tom, I think we should do that on location. We should. We should go to the City of Light. So a tryst with destiny. Oh, as Napoleon, as Napoleon <laughs> yeah. would put it. So uh, thank you very much for listening and à bientôt. Bye-bye.